0: Welcome to Onward in the Faith. My name is Ray Burns, and I create podcast and blog content that equips Christians to approach every area of life with a biblical worldview. Today is going to be part two of our discussion on my three-step guide to reading and understanding the Bible. As a bit of a reminder from our last episode, we discussed the three audiences that we need to keep in mind whenever we are reading and trying to understand any part of the Bible. That first audience is the original audience. That is, who was this spoken to or written to and who is saying it, considering things like the time period, the genre of the literature, and things like that. After that is the timeless audience, which is, what does this mean for all Christians at any time? And then finally is the modern audience, which is, how does this verse or passage apply to me? And last time, I went through the basics of what this looks like and today we're going to put it into practice with a very popular verse of Jeremiah 29:11 and as i said last time some people might be a little upset at the beginning of this because this is an incredibly popular verse for christian coffee mugs and signs and things like that if you're familiar with this verse you've probably seen it in the new international version which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, as we're doing this, I hope some of you will consider actually opening your Bibles and kind of seeing if what I'm saying is true and makes sense. You can use really almost any Bible version that you're comfortable with. I will personally be working from the New American Standard Bible, and the way that this verse reads there is... For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So whenever this verse is discussed or used or when people declare it, it often has a very similar tone to it. People use it in terms of their own prosperity. God doesn't mean to harm you. He plans to prosper us. That's what it says in the verse itself. God has prosperity in mind for us. That's his plan. People will see it in a broader idea of success. They will have a job interview coming up or a sport event or whatever and they'll claim Jeremiah 29:11. God has plans to give me a hope and a future. You know, success is a good thing. You know, being successful at a job gives us a future and and we feel like that that's what that verse means for us. People will see it as just general good that God means for us in our lives. A tragedy may befall someone, or someone may be living in uncertainty, and they'll use this verse to encourage themselves that in the end everything is going to work out well. In a way, it's almost kind of like a Christian karma where you know bad things may be happening, but the person's going to get good out of it because they, they deserve good and God wants good for them. Um, Likewise, people may use it for just hope in general. Whenever there's death or sickness, we want to know why. We want it to mean something. And this verse can be reassuring and comforting in those times where everything seems dark and hopeless, that we feel like God's saying to us, No, I know the plans I have for you. I'm planning not to harm you, but to give you hope. And that can give us great comfort. But when we're trying to understand what a Bible verse is actually saying, it's very important that when we're reading it, we are letting the Bible tell us what it means rather than us reading a string of words and applying whatever meaning we want to it. By that, I mean if we were reading something written in the Bible and something written in the Quran, and if we were to take part of a speech from Martin Luther King Jr., and if we were to just take a few words out of that, it sounded good or hopeful, we could apply whatever meaning we wanted to it. Whether it's what was originally meant in those words, as long as we are only going to look at a handful of what's being said, we can make it say whatever we want. And that can be very dangerous because a lot of times what we will do is read the Bible and make it say what we want for it to say rather than reading it and letting God tell us through his word what he wants us to know, whether we like it or not. And so when we read the Bible in that way, by us reading into it, us putting our meaning on it, what we will often do is make our personal desires in that moment be the lens that we're viewing the Bible through. And so with this verse, we will read it and say, well, I desire to have good in my life. I desire to have this bad thing happening to me to be worth it for me in the end. I want a job loss to end up becoming an even better job in the future. I want this sickness to make me stronger or something like that. Uh, We want to know that God is on our side. We want to know that he hasn't abandoned us, that he is really there and really exists. And ultimately, it's very tempting to look at this verse and really use it for a sense of self-empowerment or even general basic inspiration, not necessarily pointing us to God, but just making us feel better, making us feel powerful, making us feel like, yeah, this is going to work out for me. This is going to go well for me. I'm going to come out of this even stronger and more successful and more prosperous than before. And God is promising that he's going to do that for me. And so when we do that, we make this Bible verse about us. And so when God says that he plans to not bring us calamity, but that he has our well-being in mind, when he says that he wants to give us a future and a hope, we're defining what that means based on what we want it to mean, rather than what God intends when he said it. And as we've discussed, it's very, very important for Christians to be responsible readers. And we're reminded of that in 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, "...be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed." Accurately handling the word of truth. So as followers of Christ, if we want to be diligent, if we want to be responsible with this precious gift God has given us in the Bible, then we want to make sure we're handling Jeremiah 29 and everything in the Bible accurately, like Paul calls us to. So using the three-step guide from previously, let's take a look at what it looks like to read and understand the Bible by letting the Bible speak for itself. And the first thing we need to look at is the original audience. First thing to consider whenever we're reading any part of the Bible is what kind of book is this? Because Jeremiah is different from Psalms and different from Ephesians and different from Genesis. All of these have different tones to them because they're different genres. In other words, in normal literature, you have fiction genres or science fiction Horror, mystery, historical nonfiction, things like that. And what's written in those is going to change based on its genre. And so with Jeremiah, we need to consider that this is a prophet book, a book of prophecy. Prophets, in a very brief summary, were messengers from God. God had something he wanted to communicate to his people, to Israel. He would choose a prophet, and that prophet would speak on behalf of God. They would often say, thus declares the Lord, and things like that. In other words, they had the authority to represent God to Israel. Now, sometimes this could be metaphorical. If you've ever read the bulk of something like Revelation, a lot of that is metaphor. It's weird, it's strange, and it's sometimes confusing. But based on what we're reading here, this doesn't seem to be a metaphor. It doesn't seem to be imagery. It just seems to be, here is what God said. So what we're going to read then is... What God wanted Israel to understand. And so the first main question we ask about our original audience is who is saying this? Now, this is Jeremiah speaking, but he's delivering this message from God. And we can see this if we go all the way back to Jeremiah 29 and the first part of the first verse, which says, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. So, what we're reading here is something that Jeremiah wrote and sent on. For Israel to read. Now we want to ask, well, who is he talking to? And we can see that he's talking to the Israelites who are in the Babylonian captivity. And if we keep reading verse 1, we will see this because it says, to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then in verse 4, he goes on to say, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon so now it's really important for us to stop and ask well, what is this Babylonian captivity why did Israel get sent from Jerusalem to Babylon and this is a long string of very unfortunate events and it all really starts with Israel being Israel in that they were following God and then they looked at the culture around them and said aha we want to be like them and this was primarily led by King Manasseh And you can read more about this in 2 Kings, chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. And you can see all the stuff that he decided to lead Israel into doing. But the basic summary of it is that they worshiped other gods, they defiled the things of God, and everyone in Israel seemed just fine going along with it. So King Manasseh led them, but people followed. Now from here, God said, that he was going to basically break up Israel. He was going to have them conquered. And after a few kings after King Manasseh, this eventually happened, and Israel was conquered and then finally captured by Nebuchadnezzar II. And these people of God, God's chosen people, as punishment for their continued idolatry and disobedience, were sent to this wicked, corrupt, sinful city called Babylon. Babylon. So in a nutshell, that's what's happening here. That's the context. That's what this Babylonian captivity is all about. And as we're going to read, we're fairly early on into this because of what God is about to tell them about their time that they're going to spend there. And so now we say we know who is speaking, who they're speaking to. Now we need to say, why are they talking about this? Why is God saying what he's saying? And for this, we need to rewind a few verses, looking at Jeremiah 29, verses 8 and 9. Where it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And now this is important because God is contrasting this with something that He commanded them a few verses before this. So, what these prophets were actually doing was they were promising victory over Babylon, and they were promising good things were coming soon. They were going out and saying, I have dreamed a dream. God has spoken to me, and this is the message that I deliver to you from the Lord of hosts. And they were saying things that were getting the people really excited. They were telling the people the things they wanted to hear. Because, of course, if you are captured and taken to the complete opposite kind of city from where you want to be, the best thing that you can possibly hope for is God is on your side, God is going to rescue you soon, don't get comfortable, don't settle in, be ready for another flight from Egypt like in the days of Moses. That's the kind of things that these prophets were saying to the people. But in verses 4 through 7, we actually see what God is actually saying, and it stands in direct contrast to what these false prophets were probably saying. Because what God says to them there is he tells them to plant gardens for food. He tells them to marry and have children and grandchildren. And in general, he tells them to seek the well-being of the city where God has exiled them. Because when the city prospers, they're going to prosper. So in a nutshell, what God is basically saying is dig in, be prepared to establish a life here. Because this city, this wicked city of Babylon that hates me, is your new home. Don't wait for me to sit and rescue you. Don't wait for a miraculous deliverance in a week. You're going to be here a long time. And God even tells them exactly how long they can expect to be there. And this had to be heartbreaking to hear. And this actually comes right before Jeremiah 29, 11. So just consider that. There's this verse that we're discussing that a lot of people use for hope and inspiration and, ah, God's got good things coming for me. But let's see what God says right before promising them or seeming to promise them hope and prosperity and good things. So in Jeremiah 29, 10, he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And so as we read this and as we consider it, we realize God's not just punishing them. For their disobedience. He's not just washing his hands and giving them a divine spanking because he's mad. When we read what Jeremiah 29:10 says, what he's doing isn't just getting them in trouble, but he is fixing the relationship that Israel had shattered. God is setting out to put them through this for their good, for their prosperity, not for their destruction, not for their calamity. God is using this for good, and he promises that. And so after saying, you're going to be here 70 years, and after 70 years, I'm going to return to you. I'm going to bring you back. And then he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. But then God doesn't stop there. He goes on to discuss it even more. He reveals even more of his plan for them. Because here's the end goal. Here's why God is doing this. He says in Twelve through fourteen, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So now we need to be very careful here as we're moving on, that this is to Israel. And we have to remember, this is to Israel. So when God is promising he's going to restore their fortunes and gather them from the nations, he is saying, you, Israel, at this period in time, here's what I'm telling you I'm going to do. So we need to not jump ahead. We need to make very certain we remember this is not to us yet. We're not interpreting what this means to us today. But what we do see here is that God and Israel had a rift between them. Now, God is God. He could have just snapped his fingers, fixed their hearts instantly, and they could have just immediately started praising God once again. But he didn't. He chose to spend the next 70 years bringing Israel back to him, for them to want to turn to him, to cry out to him, to say, God, you are our God and no other God is like you. That's what God desired for them to do. And he chose to spend 70 years to get them to do it. And it wasn't just God sitting and waiting around. He allowed them to be conquered by their enemies, by a wicked nation, in order to fulfill his greater purpose. And his greater purpose wasn't their individual good, but for them as a people, as a nation, to turn back to him, for his chosen to love and worship him as they need to do. Not because God needs it, but because God knows this is what's best for them to do. And that's all God wanted to do, really, was to say, Israel, I'm going to bring you back to me, and here's how. So finally, we need to ask, God said it, Israel heard it, what did it mean to Israel? How, how would this have impacted them? And we can really consider several things that could have been running through their minds at the time. Initially, they could have felt like God was abandoning them, right? Seventy years. If someone was born that day, they would be 70 before they could return to Israel and escape Babylon. Seventy is forever, especially when you're in captivity, when you're trapped and suffering. And that becomes even more difficult to understand because most likely anyone who could understand what was being said at this exact moment would be dead. If you're a 20-year-old listening to this, you would be 90 when God chose to bring Israel back to him. And in the setting, there's a good chance that a lot of those people probably knew they weren't going to live to see this. And so we see that, even just in a general understanding of Jeremiah 29, 11, the people who heard this had to know that what God was doing wasn't for their individual benefit, because these people were going to spend the next 70 years of their lives in captivity, suffering, surrounded by wickedness, and then they would die. And that was the future they could look forward to. That was the best hope they had, was to hopefully not live too bad of a life before they died, knowing that their children or their grandchildren were the ones who were going to inherit God's rescue. But at the same time, Israel knew they messed up. They had to know they messed up. Even though it would take them 70 years to fully turn back to God, in that moment, they had to be in repentance. They had to see the cost of their sin. But what God was doing was not leaving them in darkness, but promising that there was a light at the end of it, that he had bigger plans in mind for them, despite their disobedience, despite their sin and their own wickedness. He told them, Israel, there's a purpose for your suffering, And above all, God showed them that he was in control. Even when these wicked Babylonians had conquered them and captured them, God was saying, this wasn't something that I'm trying to work around. This isn't something where I'm making the best of a bad situation. This was my decree. Babylon may feel like they're powerful and in control, but they are going to get theirs. And if you read history, you'll see Babylon really got theirs. But for now, Babylon is my tool for your good, for you to return to me. And that's step one. We've looked at the original audience. We've looked at who's speaking, who they're speaking to, why it's happening, and sort of what impact this would have had on the people of that time. And having seen that, now we can go on to step two, which is that timeless audience. And as a reminder, my favorite way to explain this is that it's like we're eavesdropping on this conversation. God, through Jeremiah, isn't speaking to us today in the year 2020. He's not saying, you there, Christian, reading this on your iPhone or your Android or on your computer or in your Bible while sipping on coffee, while you have electricity illuminating what you're reading. God's not talking to that person. He's talking to Israel. But we are eavesdropping on that conversation, getting a glimpse of who is this God? What kind of character does he have that he would say these things, that he would do these things? Who is this person that can do what he's saying he's doing. And so in a way, we're going to now kind of build a character profile and say, based on what we're seeing, based on what we're hearing, who is this God? Who is he? What is he about? What does he do? What do we need to know about him? And a good thing that we can ask ourselves is, what do we learn about God and what do we learn about the people based on what we're hearing? Now, the truths that we can kind of get from people in this bigger context are that Evildoers don't act outside of God's control. No matter how horrible the crime or how horrible a a group may be, they're not outside of God's sovereignty. God was in control of Babylon. He's in control of what's happening elsewhere. We may not understand why he does what he does, but that's not what's important for our faith and trust in him. We also see the importance of not letting culture conform our desires and our beliefs because that's the opposite of God transforming our minds like we see in Romans 12:2. Israel had let culture dictate what they wanted, what they desired, where they thought their satisfaction would be, and it was the complete opposite of everything that represented God. And then finally we see that if God's ultimate desire for this 70-year Babylonian captivity was to bring his people back to him, then what we see is that as people We will never, ever be satisfied apart from fully surrendering our lives and our hearts and our minds to God, because that is what God desired for them. And even though that was Israel, we know that that is just what he desires for his people, because that is what people need. We need God, and nothing else can satisfy. And from there, we can learn some big, big truths about God. One, we learn that God doesn't react to situations, but he is the actor. He's the one that initiates things. He talks about how he knows the plans that he has. These things that are happening are things that are all according to his plan. He decreed that this would happen generations ago with King Manasseh, like we discussed. He himself allowed Babylon to rise to power. He allowed them to set themselves against Israel. He allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to grow up to be the kind of person that would want to do these things to Israel. And then he let it happen. So it's not like they just came along and God was trying to scramble and figure out something. No, he knew all this was happening centuries and centuries ago. We also see from this that God is sovereign. He is in control. God's not just a really super version of us who's trying to work with the best information he can and do what's within his limited power to make the best of things. No, God is in control. He has the plans. He said, you're going to be here for 70 years. And you can guarantee they're going to be there for 70 years. Babylon's not going to suddenly get conquered ahead of time. Israel's not going to lead a rebellion and escape and be free. No, they're going to be there 70 years because that's what God decrees. Likewise, at the end of all this, God's not hoping that his gamble paid off. He says, you're going to return to me. You're going to turn to me with your whole hearts. And we know without a doubt, Israel is turning to God with their whole hearts at the end of this, because that is what God has designed to happen. And then a few more things that we can kind of learn about God through this is that he doesn't abandon his people. There were probably people growing up, you know, children or or younger kids, who may not have understood what it was like to live in Israel, to be the people of God. All they understood was this, this pagan culture that they were growing up in and how these Israelites were kind of weird and mistreated. And there may have been people who were saying, well does God even care? Is God still here with us? And we see from this that, no, God doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't just leave them floating in the breeze. Another thing we see is that when God punishes his people, he does it to restore them. He does it to fix the relationship that we have broken. Whether it's Israel then or whether it's us today, God is a God who takes his people and does not let them go. He does not let them just love sin and just wash his hands of them because, oh, they're too broken. I can't do anything with this anymore. No, God is God, and his ultimate desire and goal is to constantly bring us back to him because without him, we're going to be just like Israel. We're going to constantly fall into our own version of idolatry and sin and pride and wickedness, but God's not content to just let us sit and stew in our filth. God will gently or sometimes harshly bring us back to him, but he will bring us back to him. Another thing we see is that God doesn't work how we want or even expect him to work. If God could have changed Israel's hearts and had them say, hey, I'm going to bring you back to me. How would you like that to look? What would you like that to look like? They would probably say, well, just make us love you more. And in a way, God is doing that. But no one was going to say, well, we really need a good 50, 60, better make it 70 years to be safe. Let us be conquered by these these wicked Babylonians and use that as a time to cause us to see how badly we need you. Let us see the effects of our sin. Let us see what it's like to live in a culture that absolutely hates you and is so depraved and fallen into idolatry. Let us see what this culture that we look up to actually looks like. No, no one's going to say, yes, let us suffer and die for 70 years so that you can restore our children and grandchildren to yourself. That's not what anyone wanted or expected, but that's what God did. And if God is all good, if he is all powerful, if God is perfect, then we knew that even though no human being would want this, this was actually what was the best thing to happen. We also see that God is not someone who acts with our happiness in mind, but ultimately for his own glory. Because God is not sitting there saying, oh, well, how can I make these people the happiest? What can I do to make them really like me? God's ultimate purpose, God's ultimate design and desire is for his own glory to be shown because that is the best thing because God's glory is his goodness, is his power, is his love, is his justice and his mercy. And so his motivation isn't, well, how can I use all my power to make them happy for a few weeks until they find something else to make them happy? No, it's how do I bring these people to a state where they have exactly what they need, which is to love and serve me, not because I'm an egomaniac, because God's not, but because that is how they were designed, and that is what will give them the greatest satisfaction, the greatest life they could possibly imagine. More than wealth, more than success, more than fame, more than even good health, God's greatest desire is for us to simply surrender and to live a life not of yo-yoing back and forth, not of being tossed around and hoping that we can land on truth one day, definitely not for us to go try what the culture tells us is going to make us happy and then when everything falls apart, we then go running back to God in prayer. That's not his desire for our lives. If God is our satisfaction, then his greatest desire for us is not our happiness, but our finding him and living a life dedicated to him. Because Christ didn't die to make us happy. Christ died to bring us to God because only he could do that. And so now, having seen what's going on historically with the original audience, having kind of pulled a bit of a character profile of God out of this and said, okay, how could all Christians from all times benefit from this? What can a Christian in the year 200 see about God and see about people that would be in line and in agreement with what someone in the year 1800 would read and what someone in the year 2020 would read? And so now that we have a huge picture of God, and how he works and what he desires now we can do step three of this process which is to just apply it to the modern audience and when we first read Jeremiah 29 11 that's what we wanted to skip to first we wanted to skip ahead and say well God says the word hope so he wants to give me hope he uses the word prosperity or our welfare and so he has these good things in mind for us he wants us to prosper and thrive and be successful he doesn't mean harm to come to us. He doesn't want calamity in our lives. So surely God wouldn't let something bad happen to me, right? Well, no, we see that God's greatest desire isn't to make people happy. He was he was, in his perfection. He let his people sit in Babylon for 70 years. He brought calamity to them. But his ultimate desire, the ultimate end of their story wasn't calamity. It was prosperity. Not in a money sense, but in thriving as a people who had given their lives to God and were living for him and serving him. And so then when we apply this to our lives, we can go anywhere we want with it. I have a small number of notes of what I personally get out of it and what I want to communicate about how I would apply this to my life today and your life and and anyone listening. But really, once we see God, see who he is, see what he desires, understand why he's saying what he's saying and what that means to us, then we can apply it to very, very specific situations in our lives that are going to be so different from what someone else is going to get out of it. But in a broad sense, here's how I personally see this verse applying to our lives today. So we can see the role of suffering as a result of our sin. Whenever we lie, whenever we are angry, whenever we are dishonest at work, whatever sin it is that we're struggling with or give into, we see that the effects aren't there because God's mad at us and wants us to feel bad. We see that God ultimately and always has restoration in mind. He wants us to come out of this loving him more and praising him and seeing him for who he is. That's not to say that he's going to reverse the effects of our sin, because a lot of time our sin is irreversible. We do the damage, and God, in his perfection, still makes something good come out of it. You know, we see that in Romans eight twenty-eight that God works all things together for good for those who love God. It's not our personal, individual good. It's, like we talked about, God's glory. God ultimately uses our sin, and in his goodness and in his mercy, doesn't just annihilate us, but instead uses it for the ultimate good of individual Christians, but more than that, the entire body of believers all throughout the world. Another way we can apply it is that we can trust that God is in control and doesn't abandon us. God specifically told the people of Israel, here's what I'm doing. Here's what your next 70 years are going to look like. Buckle down, dig in, and make a life here because this is your life now. But this is not where your story ends. You're not just going to become Babylonians. No, you are still my people and I will be bringing you out. And at the end of it, you're going to love me so much more. And so there may have been times where people really doubted God. They felt abandoned. But we see in the Babylonian captivity, we see in the Garden of Eden, we see all throughout history, and we see all throughout our lives that God is always in control. God is always there and present and always working behind the scenes, often in thousands of ways that we'll never see or understand. But one thing we know with absolute certainty is that no matter how terrible, how scary, how life-threatening the situation is, even if we die, even if we suffer and are miserable and everything goes wrong and we die, God never once abandoned us. We have him present in us through the power of the Holy Spirit and him living in us. We are never abandoned in that Christ is always there interceding for us. And God, the Father, never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He is always there. Another thing that I personally get out of this one is that how important it is to refocus our desires, not on our betterment, our happiness, and our enjoyment, but ultimately on God's glory. Because remember, the people who were hearing this, the people to whom God was saying, I know the plans I have for you. I don't have calamity in mind. I want to give you a future. Well, the future for a lot of listeners was death. They were going to be buried in Babylon. And so, in that moment, either God was lying directly to those people, God had abandoned those particular people, or God had something much, much, much bigger in mind. And if we know God as we do, then we know that ultimately his focus wasn't on making individuals happy and improving the lives of an individual, but instead to take an entire group of his people and refocus their desires and their satisfaction and on him because he is who they ultimately needed. He was the only thing that wasn't going to fail them. All these idols, all these false gods, all these rituals that they were doing, all these things were going to fail them ultimately. They may bring them happiness or safety or security for a time, but ultimately God is the only one who can never fail us. And that is why God knows that we need him above everything else in life. And that is why everything he does is ultimately pushing us in that direction to be more like Christ, to be less like the world, and ultimately to make God our satisfaction. And then finally, we see that God will always give us what we need, even if it's not how we want to get it. Now, that is, of course, different from God giving us what we want. We want a new house. We want a new car. Those aren't necessarily needs. And oftentimes, if those are the true focuses of our hearts and our desires, and we say, oh, I would be happy if I just had this, God probably won't give that to us because that will be the most destructive thing on earth that we could receive. But we do know that God gives us everything we need in ways that we may not expect it. And so when we are sitting there and praying and saying, God, help me with my anger, help me with my greed, help me with my desire to gossip, like Israel, he could snap his fingers, instantly purify our hearts, remove all desire for that sin, and we can just go on and never worry about it again. For some people, he does that, and it's amazing. But for a lot of us, we don't get off that easy. Instead, God puts us through the fire to refine us, to purge that sin from our lives. Because it's often through seeing our need for him that we can at all kill sin. Because killing sin, whatever our sinful desires are, whether it's pornography or alcohol or whatever controlling sin we have in our lives, whatever that sin is, the solution to it isn't try harder, do better, have better self-control. Those things often help, but ultimately it's our trust and reliance on God. It's us saying, God, you are worth so much more to me than this. You bring me so much more satisfaction than this. This is hollow, but you are full. That is when we kill sin in our lives, because sin ultimately is just us trying to find satisfaction in something, not God. And so what better way for God to bring about restoration and bring about repentance in our lives than to let us see how desperately we truly do need him and so in conclusion to all this this is what it looks like to read the bible using that three-step guide from the previous episode i threw out the big word of exegesis where we pull the meaning out of the text we say okay what is being taught here what is the truth what is actually being said and why what does it mean how do i apply it to my life that's what we've done And as I warned last time, that step one is the most difficult because it's not just going to come to us that, oh, well, the King Manasseh messed up and God said that this great calamity and this conquering was going to come their way. That's not obvious from the text. It takes some study. It takes referencing things that historians have discovered. It takes referencing Bible scholars and theologians and pastors and people who spend their lives studying this stuff and understand how it all kind of intersects and connects. So it's not just a simple matter of, well, open the Bible, point at a verse, ah, I'm going to understand what it means. No, that's not what our Bible reading is going to look like. But despite the difficulty, despite sometimes even the frustration and feeling lost and hopeless and discouraged, at the end of the day, if Our ultimate goal is seeing God as He's revealed Himself in the Bible. Then, this isn't just one option of reading. This isn't just one method or one strategy. Ultimately, I think this is the only way for us to see who God is as He's revealed Himself in the Bible, because this is the way to read that takes what is being said and lets it speak for itself. It lets the Bible say what it means to say. And then, from that, We get out of it what we need based on the truth presented. We're not putting our meaning into it, our understanding into it. We aren't turning to the Bible as a means of self-empowerment or encouragement or inspiration. Instead, we are turning to the Bible as God's perfect word that reveals who God is, who Christ is, and what he did for us, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It reveals who we are as people and how little worth and power we really have and how so perfect and amazing God is and how through Christ that gap has been bridged and we can have fellowship with God. We can have God in our lives, but it's not about our happiness. It's about his glory. And so when we're seeking that, when we're ultimately seeking the things that God desires, which are his glory and his people turning to him and surrendering to him, then first looking at that original audience and then the timeless audience and then finally getting our out our application is going to be the best way for us to truly know not what we hope god says or who we hope he is but who he truly is as he's shown himself and so really this is worth the self-discipline required it's going to take a long time because this is a way of reading that most people aren't familiar with because it's hard it seems like it's for pastors and really nerdy christians but really this is just responsibly reading the Bible. And it's not about being smart. It's not about doing it, quote-unquote, the right way and making people feel bad for not doing it a certain way. It's really just about being responsible, doing the hard work, handling God's Word well, and treasuring it for what it is so that at the end of the day, we get exactly what we want, which is to truly see who God is. And the more we see God for who He truly is, and not what we want him to be, not what our opinions of him are, not how we are kind of forcing our belief systems into the Bible, but instead just letting him reveal himself. The more of that God that we see, then the more that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, can live a life that is dedicated to nothing more and nothing less than bringing him glory. Thank you for listening to Onward in the Faith. If you found this episode useful, Consider supporting me for as little as $1 every month by visiting patreon.com slash faith. Links to my Patreon and this episode's original article are in the show notes. Now go out there and keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.